So thank you, Merle, for being here and welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's sunny here now, so the weather forecast is good this week. So we're happy when the sun shines. <laughs> Perfect. I want to start off right. But I want to start right off with a question uh, that I was asking myself, and then we can talk about the weather and everything we want. But let's start right in the subject. Okay. Um, what does it take to be a CEO, to become a CEO, and to be a CEO? I'm interested in that. I want to know more about that. I think, firstly, ambition. You have to really want it. Um, I don't think people become CEOs by accident. I think maybe they do, but I think probably in startups, if that is the case, then fairly quickly they bring somebody else in who wants to do the, the role maybe more than they do. Um, I think determination, tenacity, you have to be strong, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, strong as in flexing muscles. There are many different kinds of strength. I think, and, and often the softer strength, the more um, internal strength is, is important in that role. I think, and you also have to be prepared to um, play bad cop as well as good cop, because I think you need to always ensure that you have uh, the focus on what is the right thing for the business, hmm. um, which is not always the same thing as what is the right thing for you or what is the right thing for the people in the business. So it's a balance. And, and sometimes it means you have to make difficult decisions as well as, as well as more enjoyable ones. So, so I think because it's, it's a hard role, certainly harder than I first envisaged. And consequently, I think you have to really want it and be ambitious and determined to, to succeed in, in that role. And how did uh, you end up in this uh, situation, being a CEO? Um, that's a good question. I think it was quite a long journey. I think that's something else that you have to recognize. It's definitely a marathon rather than a sprint. Certainly to run a business, of, you know, a, a, a sizable business. Um, it was... Again, I think it was the determination and the ambition. And um, I, I always had it in my head that I would, would have my own business. I would start my own business. Um, in, my, in my head, when I was younger, I imagined that I would do that by the age of 30. And that did not happen. <laughs> so I think, you know, it is also, there's a good lesson there that trajectories of careers do not go like this. They go like this. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's up and down all the time. So so I think that's where the determination and the tenacity comes in, because I think when you have had a setback, you have to pick yourself up, brush yourself off and keep going, which is sometimes a hard thing to do. Um, so I joined this business, um, KD. I did not find, found this business, Canadian 4. It's four, 43 years old. And I joined the business about 10 years ago and then... Around five years ago now, I led uh, a management buyout of the business, um, which was backed by private equity. So um, essentially what that means is that four of the five directors who, who were the owners of the business were planning to leave the business and retire. Uh, so I then had to go to private equity firms who are essentially private bankers and pitch for the money to buy the business, to give them a minority stake in the business moving forward. Um, 
and then the broader management team here at KD, the majority stake in the business. So, so we did that and that, that was completed in 2016 and we have been working in partnership with them now for the last four years. So that was, that was an interesting, interesting journey as well because a very, very different world, the world of banking and finance to what we do, which is innovation and um, product development. So very, very different uh, again, sort of having to learn new language, new skills, new ways of working to to work alongside them. But it has been it has been productive. And and a lot of uh, elements to juggle with, I guess. Uh, do you do you sometimes get overwhelmed because there's I I guess there's so much you have to pay attention to and teams and and tasks and skills and there's so much to do, right? Always. I read the other day that we only have a certain number of decisions that we can make in one day. And I think sometimes at the end of the day where the decision is, what will I have for my dinner? I've just done. I'm just just anything. I don't care because I can't actually make any more decisions. That's that's dangerous, though, because that's the time when we eat the wrong stuff. We rarely go for the decision of a healthy vegetable, right? Exactly. Exactly. Not after a difficult day. And how did you work on that skill to be able to juggle, to take decisions? To How did you improve about that? Well, I think personally, we talk a lot about superpowers, you know, in fact, but we were talking about the other day, uh, Jim yes, Collins yes. did a great. So he talks about uh, something called the hedgehog concept, which is three inter- intersections of circles. So we have Um, what drives your commercial engine? This is around driving success in a business or individually. What what drives your commercial engine? What um, are you best in the world at? And what is your passion? And I think I have always said personally that that what I am best in the world at, I guess what my superpower is, is compartmentalization. So I find this very, very easy to be able to switch off and imagine you know my life at home or my life at work or you know put my attention to a specific scenario or situation I'm able to do that and I think that's that's incredibly useful um, because you you find yourself having to move around so quickly and and at um, you know and study different subjects in depth very very quickly so compartmentalization really helps. So I also I was wondering, can you just say uh, one sentence about what's, uh, what your company actually does? Of course, people can see online if they want to know more, but just you know, in a yeah. sentence. So Community4, or KD, as we call it, is a innovation and product development consultancy. So that means that we bring together um, three elements in terms of how we think about developing products and services. So we talk around... Um, the technical innovation that's needed to create new experiences or, or products or ecosystems. We combine that with the creative um, sort of aesthetic of that. And the third element is the, the user experience. So creating something that is intuitive and um, easy to use and a compelling experience. So we bring those three factors together and we work across mainly um, consumer healthcare and healthcare um, and some FMCG products. So everything from physical, digital, um, through to service and experiences for um, predominantly large blue chip organizations. And we work with some interesting startups as well. 
And, and before that, what, what were you doing? What, what is, so the, in, in a nut, in nutshell, your, yeah. how did you end up here? I've always worked in design consultancy. Okay. So um, for over 20 years. So from when I when I graduated, that was that was the path that I, I took. I, I love creativity. Um, I can't actually design or draw myself. So I mm. have to do it vicariously through strategy and innovation. Great. And, and one question I wanted to ask you as well is, as a woman, do you think it was harder for you to arrive at this position? I guess, yes, but I want to hear it from you and how, what kind of obstacles did you encountered? In, in this industry that um, is more focused around product development and engineering as well as creative design, in consultancy um, in the UK, it is 5% women, 95% oh. men. Um, it's worse than uh, architecture or software development. It's it's very difficult for women to to break into. Uh, I don't think I realised that when I first started working in this field, but it became very obvious because there were not many women around in the business or um, in other businesses that I came across. Um, so it, it's harder, but I actually think in a way you can use your skills as, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, as well as being strong and, and, um, and sort of good at what you do, you know, that's fundamentally the basis. You have to be great at what you do um, and you have to be focused and determined in terms of, of how you can drive forward scenarios to, to enable opportunities to come from those. Um, and I think probably you have to be a bit thick skinned uh, and potentially um, not really care as much about what some people might say or think, um, because I think, you know, as in every field, there are old fashioned attitudes sometimes about what women should and shouldn't do. But it's important to be able to set examples for, for you know, our kids now and, you know, women that are starting out on these career paths to demonstrate to them that they can achieve whatever they want. It might not be to be a CEO, it might be to be something entirely different, but whatever yeah. their motivation, the opportunities are there. And you think that women, in, I mean, if it's kind of a generality, and but again, I want to hear it from you and your point of view as a woman, but you think men are more thick-skinned than women in general in business, or is it just an idea that... I think um, I think it's difficult to generalize because obviously everybody is different, but we can see statistically that um, there is more confidence in terms of their own abilities often in men. And that's not just my view, that's actually quantitative data that's proven that. So for example, if a man has eight of, sorry, if a man has two or three of the 10 skills required, statistically he is more likely to apply for that role. Whereas if a woman is applying for the same role and has eight of those 10 things, statistically she is less willing to apply. Um, she's less likely to negotiate on her package and her um, salary. She is less likely to ask for, um, you know, for additional benefits, etc. So there's been a lot of studies that have have gone on in terms of um, behaviours. So um, I think, you know, obviously as well, if you don't, if you don't necessarily fit in, if you don't look like everybody else around you, and um, whether that's because you're a woman or any factor at all. Um, you know, that makes it harder because, um, you know, you see, um, you see uh, less 
similarities and and you you just generally fit less because you know yeah. you are not the same as the other people around you so I think you know that does make it harder but ultimately hence the point about saying you have to almost stop caring about some of that and drive through that so that's a great advice for them I guess and and what would you what kind of tips would you give to any woman who wants to um, who wants to climb the ladder, whatever the industry is, and and be like you and great at what you do, and what, so one of the advice is that stop caring and and be more thick skin, maybe a, a woman or men, uh, by the way. But yeah. what are the other advices would you would you give, especially to women? Yeah, I think it's stop stop caring so much. I think caring is great and and being empathetic and demonstrate but um, potentially stop caring so much about what other people think about you. Um, I think that can hold that can hold people back because it can impact on confidence. Um, I think there's a saying that, that, um, that I use, which is behind every great woman, there is um, many, many more women. So I think that's, <laughs> um, that's important in terms of finding your network, finding your, your support mm -hmm. and finding that in an environment that you're comfortable in, which is harder harder for women because I think it's important that you have sponsors, you have mentors, you have people who can give you advice and, and perhaps are potentially a little bit removed from the situation. So um, we have um, set up um, mentoring schemes um, sort of, and the work that we do for an organisation called Kerning the Gap around women in, in leadership. Um, there is another quote that I like I like using, which was Madeleine Albright, who was um, Secretary of State in the US a few years back. And she said that there is a special place in hell for women who do not support other women. Um, because, you know, I think some, some, some women choose not to, but ultimately it's a responsibility if you climb the ladder to send the ladder back down and to make sure that, that people are, are um, you know, you're helping people potentially how, how you were helped in, in your career. I think it's a mistake to, to think that, that, you know, that if you've made it yourself, that, um, that other people should do the same. I think we have a responsibility to, to help people progress and grow and, and, and learn. Yeah, that's a great point. And last time I was um, having my podcast with Sonia Choquette, who is a um, coach, an American coach, intuition and she was saying for herself that when she arrived in paris uh, it, it was just at the, at the time that she wanted to improve in her career and in another phase in her life she was having this attitude as a woman of um she's a victim and i, w I was wondering what you thought of that that she was a thing she was Kind of a, what she was saying it was American versus French, which is uh, debatable. But um, she was basically saying that she wanted to get out of this mindset. I'm a woman. I have to be taken care of and to take her destiny kind of, if we can say in, in those terms, take her destiny. I, I don't know if you did you feel the same thing or... I don't think I've ever felt like that personally and I think some people absolutely I understand some people do and I think there's probably societal influences around that as well and yeah. you know those are often ingrained in us from when we are young but I think you know my mother always worked through um through her career you know when I was small and as did obviously my father and I always remember 
how hard they worked when I was young. You know, they were always working. So I think, you know, they instilled that that ethos of hard work, but also that ethos of you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah. You don't have to necessarily conform to societal norms. But I, I do think, you know, and I've seen that throughout my career and even at university, that often, you know, there is that that preconception that that women can't do something because maybe it's too hard or too challenging or, you know, it's not befitting. Um, and I think, you know, all of those factors do then um, often, you know, create this place where where um, women feel there's a natural space for them to inhabit. Um, but ultimately, and for some people, that that might be what they want out of life and, and that might be their motivation. And if so, that's fine. But I think there's an important lesson there that, they need to know that if they want more, then that's possible too. Yeah. I think the last sentence was uh, unclear because it cut. Can you repeat what you said? Just the yeah, last words. So, yeah. So I was just saying, as well as understanding that, you know, that might be what some people want in terms of their motivation. They also yeah. need to understand that if they want more, then that's possible too. It's great that you said that you saw your parents because also a big one of my favorite theme to talk about is education. And we always say that parents, they, they, they I don't know in English, lead by example. That's what we say yes. or yeah. teach by example. Yeah. And that's what they did with you, basically. They didn't ask you, you need to work hard or tell you, or do, you that necessarily you. I mean, maybe they did say you can become whoever you want to become. But ultimately, they show it. So this is also very important for parents. Yeah, and that was that was the the norm. And I think also building on your your point, Bootsy, they they placed an incredible amount of importance on education. They saw education as as the key to the opportunities in life. You know, and I think I think actually, I think maybe I'm not sure. I necessarily agree 100% with that in terms of further education. I think, you know, we've seen many examples of people who never went to university or never never sat, you know, left school at 16 who have come on to be incredible successes in their lives. Yeah. But um but I think they understood the confidence that education can give you and and how important that is. Yeah, and they educated uh, themselves in different ways as well. It's not necessarily yeah. that they went to college, it's just uh They learn by themselves and, and they reinvented themselves. And there's something as a CEO, how do you, something I wonder, I was wondering myself, how do you do to gather people around a mission, around a purpose that might not be theirs because you are a CEO, you, uh, um, you're a partner in this company, you have this uh, sense of ownership naturally. How do you, Um, give this sense of ownership and and that people really want to do it, not just because if they don't, they're fired. Basically, I think um, I think what's absolutely key to that is the values in the company and how you drive those values through the business in terms of consistency around those. Because many companies have values that are written on the wall somewhere in the building, mm -hmm. but ultimately, if they're not lived, then they're not they're not true. So we have five values in the business and they are um, smart. And I'm not just talking in terms of 
of how um, how intelligent somebody is, but smart in terms sure. of how you work, in terms of flexible working, in terms of the processes, the systems, the way we interact with our, our projects, our clients, everything. We talk about um, openness, and this is the transparency in which we work. So everything from financial data across the business through to how decisions are made and rationales created, we share all of that with all of the team. And I think that's really important in terms of bringing people on board and, and how we engage with them regarding strategy and direction. Um, we talk about pioneering because I think a lot of the work that we do is cutting edge, but also in terms of, of how we work and how, how we, we drive forward. And I think that, that fits into our fourth, which is, um, cre uh, which is curiosity. Hmm. Because I think if you have a natural curiosity and if you look to, to bring people into the team that also share that natural curiosity, then um, then you deliver better work because people are always asking. It was like um, uh, your example that you, we spoke of previously around what if, what if, what if, yeah. unless, you know, unless. So all that time building on that natural curiosity. And the, the fifth one, which is the most important, 100%, is respect. And, and that does not matter if it's respect in terms of, um, you know, if it's the CEO or the housekeeper, who is putting you know the bins out it does not make any difference it has to be there has to be complete respect and openness so we do things in our business like um we have an open board so when we have our board meetings once a month we um we encourage anyone from the business to come into that and to ask any question they want at the at the board table so there's complete openness and we do not know what people are going to ask and they can ask anything they want. So um, we do not have, we do not have, um, I, I hot desk, so I do not have an office. So I move around constantly um, throughout the building and, and, and it means that I'm always there, which might be uh, annoying for some of the team, but <laughs> it also makes me quite accessible. Um, so it's really about how those values are then lived through the business. Um, and actually with them, um, with, coronavirus that made that a hugely easier because when we were making decisions about how we would close the office or work remotely or or um you know how we would move forward in these difficult times because we'd always had such openness across the business we were able to share all of our thinking and consequently all of our team were on board and understood why and some of them turn around and say um actually i don't need to know that um, because that's your job to figure that out. It's my job to do uh, this engineering task, and um, and that's fine too. Because fundamentally, they trust they trust us to make the right decision. They trust me to to make that the right decision for them, which is a huge responsibility, but also very gratifying to know. So I think it's really how you how you live your values and really drive those through, and then then the team are all on board and and clear. There's clarity. How does that translate concretely? I guess you have this sign behind you, which is uh, obviously about curiosity and it, which is more of a, a direct, a concrete tip, ask more questions, which is cool. It gives a cool atmosphere and, and it brings them, brings them back to the values of the company. For other values, let's say it's smart. I love this, this value. But it seems to me that it would be hard to bring people on this thing. How do you make sure that what they do is smart or 
do you say what you do isn't smart? You know, I don't, I don't see how concretely you, you, you have them uh, care about the values. So with, with smart, so for example, we introduce systems and processes which are smart. So that could be smart in terms of the technology used, but also in terms of how intuitive they are. Going back to those three circles we talked around, around technical, creative, and the user experience. So um, we um, so we we make things as intuitive and as straightforward as possible in terms of how we work. So I think um, we are constantly in this cycle of, of feedback and building and and changing and iterating, um, and actually asking for opinions to share. So they feel stakeholders in this process because often um, it's their idea which has you know made this way of working better or improved. Um, so. It's around how we kind of open that up. And I think another part of, of asking people to work smartly, particularly in terms of, of how people are working now with so many more people working remotely, it's around um, it's around trust. There's a, an element of trust associated with that. Yeah. Um, because um, we have always had flexible working or for, for, for some time because we have, my view has always been, if you don't trust somebody, to work smartly, then why are you giving them a job in the first place? Because <laughs> you know, if you can't trust somebody, and I think that's really been tested because we could we were able now in this time to say to our team, you work smart however that is for you. So that might mean you work yeah. from 8 p.m. until midnight because you have children at home who are not at school. It might mean um, you know, that you you work um, you know, less hours per day and some days, however you want to do that you do what works for you because again you know being smart in terms of how we work is around that balance between our our lives and our our work lives and, and our lives outside the the office or outside the studio because never never has that been tested as much as it has been recently and then i hear of examples of friends of mine who work at companies where they have to be logged on their computer at nine yeah. o'clock in the morning and and they are um you know, their, their bosses are checking to see if they're there. And you think, you know, how is that smart? Because all they want to do now is, as soon as this is over, look for a new job because they feel completely undermined and untrusted. Whereas if we can, if we can change that and give people autonomy and, and, and consequently they understand that actually it's about balancing what's best for the company with what, what is best for them. So I think... Um, I think smart is, is everything, really, in terms of how we want to live as a business and whatever, whatever way that, um, that, that looks moving forward. So, for example, we've just, um, we just actually next week we will have the results of uh, when, this, when coronavirus started in March, we launched a steering group around ways of working, around how we could be smarter post-COVID um, post and, and what would change as a result of that. And that team had that group has no management in it at all. It is the team who have volunteers who wanted to be involved in that. So they will come back and present present their findings from that um, later this week. Yeah. Does that, does that bring it to life a bit? Yeah. Sorry. Does that bring it to life a bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this uh, this issue of trust is um, is very present in a lot of companies because. They fear, they, it's, it's kind of fear, they fear that 
the person at home is not going to work. So um, do, do you think it's because you trust your employee that they actually are uh, honest and do the work they have to do? Or is it does it has also something to do with the, um, the kind of people you hire? Yeah, it's it's both. Absolutely. It's both. Um, and again, you know, Jim Collins, he talks around um, in his book, Good to Great, getting the right people on the bus. And I think this is absolutely crucial. You have to have the right people in the business. And I think, you know, those um, five values that we talked about earlier, it's almost like a, a checklist in an interview. You know, is, is this person, you know, smart? Are they curious? You know, are they demonstrating respect in the way that they are behaving? You know, are they yeah. pioneering in terms of the work that, that they have done? So um, it's absolutely about getting the right people on the bus. I think that's that's so, so important because then, you know, you can trust. But ultimately, if you can't, you know, if you can't, um, if they're not the right people, I think that's that's often quite obvious. And I think many people will compromise because they can't find those people because they're often very difficult to find. And and so you might be tempted to compromise, but I think as hard as that can be in the short time, I think you will always regret it if you compromise in terms of the quality of the people that you bring on board. Because, you know, particularly in what we do, because, you know, we don't have a product that, that falls off the end of a manufacturing line. We are the sum of our parts, the people in the business. So we are as good as the, um, or as good as bad as the strongest or weakest link in the business. Yeah, that's so true. And at the same time, it's so hard to do. <laughs> that yeah, comes with experience as a CEO, I guess, hiring the right people. When yeah. you say it's obvious, I guess it's it's obvious maybe for you and not for all the people. Or you think for some people it's obvious and they compromise. That's what you said, right? You, see, you, yeah. you think for them it's obvious, but they say, yeah, but we don't have time or we... Why would they compromise? Actually, I'm not. I don't. I don't think I understand that. It's really. It's really hard, though. You know, and I do get it wrong. I, you know, I get it wrong all the time. I think one of the other traps that's very easy to fall into is to recruit people, and it goes back to the point we were making about about being being different to everyone around you. It's much easier to recruit somebody that you can relate to. So to recruit in your in your in your shadow, you know, somebody who. Um, you know, who may be from a similar background or have similar experience or similar qualifications or, yeah. um, you know, um, know people in, on your friendship network. And, and, and that can be really tempting because uh, you can, you know, you can understand those people's motivations easier often. But actually, I think as well, that can, that can be a real mistake because you can um, be projecting your own experiences or understanding on those individuals and, and it might it might be you know it's completely different so I think that's quite an easy trap to fall into as well when recruiting to to um, sort of draw comfort from people who you understand or, or people that you think um, you know will will kind of share share you know share your values but Often it's somebody who's very different to you who is actually what you need for the business. Mm, yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So what, what to, to end up on this chapter around that, what, what other advice can you give any leader or someone who's building a team other than what you all, all said about, uh, you know, gathering people around a purpose and around values? And can you, do you have a few tips about that? 
Yeah, I think I think follow your instinct, follow your gut. Um, you know, because people talk a lot about head and the heart, but I think our instinct is often very important too. So, and it goes back to that compromise. You know, if you have that instinct that you kind of there's something just not sitting quite right with you, mm-hmm. you think they they feel like you know they've got all the qualifications we need, but there's something saying. I'm not, I'm not sure, my, you know, so my, my instinct is telling me I'm not sure, then I think you should always listen, listen to your instinct. But I would also be really open to hiring people who take you out of your comfort zone, because I think, you know, um, so, I mean, for example, we were talking around product development and how, how few women there are involved in this industry. And actually that presents problems of its own, because then, and we hear of this in, in new technology and AI and all these these um, areas as well, where in those instances, you know, the software, the programming is being done by, you know, one group of people, there is no diversity in the same way if you're designing products, often there is little diversity um, in the, the, the product development team. Um, you know, there's one example I read recently of, uh, it's a, a really interesting startup business that is making breast pumps for new mums who are breastfeeding. And um, all of the individuals who were talking about it in the product development team were all men. And, and you think, you know, there is no first-hand experience of what mm. it is like to you. Well, maybe they have used a breast pump, but I don't know. <laughs> we don't want to know. We don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just, that's just evenings and weekends. But it's, um, you know, whatever the scenario is, having that, that diversity in your yeah. team to be able to... Um, to demonstrate empathy and, and relatability to, um, to individuals or scenarios or opportunities is really important. And and obviously from different cultures, and uh, today we're talking a lot about that with uh, what recently happened, but also to link it back to men and women, I think too many women or too many men can be bad in one, one way or the other. The guys, are, if there's a team of guys that tend to be too, I mean, your example is great, of course, because it's obviously the product that is unrelated mm-hmm. to the experience. But yeah, the, the, the personality of the group can shift if, if there are too many of them. So, yeah. yeah. And actually character types as well as, as well as, you know, whether it's male or female. So, you know, I think it's important to think about that when building a team, particularly if it's a team that are working very closely together. You know, it's about, um, you know, what what kind of profile are they as well and understanding yep. how all of that fits together is hugely important because otherwise you can you can have, you know, sizable issues in teams. And how do you do, how would you, um, would you hire someone that is already creative and you feel the person is creative or you, can you also help the person develop his or her creativity? And how would you do that if the person is in your team? So we talk about when we hire, and I think this is this is actually any level, but particularly probably maybe the first 10 years of, of somebody's career, we talk about 25% experience, 25% qualifications, and 50% attitude. Because I think to have people to have the right attitude, an attitude towards learning and developing, and that, that natural curiosity, then, you know, people are like sponges. They can, they can learn and develop and grow. And, and I think that's hugely important. So absolutely, it's got to be around people's attitudes and, 
and you know how open they are really to to developing and learning i think you know if somebody came in to a room for an interview and and you know came with the attitude that they they already had learned and and understood all that they could then i think you know that would be a no from me yeah <laughs> definitely <laughs> And, and last time we were talking about uh, innovation in companies, uh, more even more than creativity and disruptive innovation. And um, what's your take on that? Do you think innovation, some kind of disruptive innovation, can come from employees? And how would you manage the fact that they are, they will have to have some more time to work on a, on a, on an innovation or on a specific method, or on a specific way to approach something? What's your take on that? So um, I think we have here we have downtime lists. So people, there's if they're not they're not busy on projects, and there's there's opportunities for them to kind of work on other things, proactive projects. We also have internal projects um, that have been um, proposed by members of the team, and then we we pull together other resources from different areas because we have such a multidisciplinary team. So we have innovation experts industrial designers, digital team, um, mechanical engineers, electronics and software. So, so they can pull resources onto projects. So, so we try and encourage that internally. And I think in terms of, of, sort of what I see in, in corporate, corporate worlds, it's, it, it really varies from each organization. I think it has to come from the top. There has to be this, this respect and this need for innovation and creativity. Um, some businesses have that now. I think others are still quite behind the curve as to what that looks like. And in some fields that can be influenced by regulatory, um, you know, such as uh, healthcare, et cetera, then, you know, there's, there's very tight regulations. But I think it also can be, um, it's interesting, you know, if you think about um, what's happened over the last few months. So we were involved in a project, for example, um, to create a ventilator from um, to get 10,000 into hospitals. And that was done in 85 days. Normally that process would take about four years, five years to oh, go through. Wow. And that, that went through regulatory process. So I think often um, that demonstrates, you know, when, when there really is a need and a pressure, as we've seen over yeah. um, the last few months, then how quickly things can happen and how seriously innovation can materialize and, and develop um, I see I think it's interesting the spectrum from incremental innovation through to gen, genuine transformative innovation yeah. I think that that is very hard for, for large corporates to do and they often um, also outsource that so that could take the form of um, an acquisition it could take the form of um, a, a small sort of spin-out working independently of the main organization. I think that, that creates challenges as well in terms of how they then bring that back into the organization. I've seen so many different ways of people trying to do it. Everything Each one from, has its own challenge, right? Yeah, so you have to pick yeah. your battle. You have to say, I want this type of challenge. Yes, yeah, so many challenges. And I think, um, you know, there is this, when people try and innovate outside of the parameters of the organization, of sort of the the operational system as it has been set, um, it's it more often fails than succeeds because it's just how they bring that that back into the business. Um, so, I mean, huge amounts of challenges, I think. But um, but I think 
often it, we we do a lot of work in that space so that that can work quite well because we can challenge in a way that you can as an external partner rather than internally within the business but um, and I think that's often how we deliver value but it's um, I think incremental innovation is is often done very very well inside large businesses but um, you know it's that um, is that metaphor of a super tanker you know in trying to turn that around and the length of time that that takes takes weeks to turn that around you know many of these organizations as as agile as they try and try and become are still super tankers and they cannot they cannot get yeah. that agility and that speed that they need to succeed at this so i think that's often the opportunity for entrepreneurs and how they can drive opportunity but i think again um, that's been a challenge for lots of small businesses through coronavirus and the impact of that because they're often managing very tight cash flows and um, reliant on funding, which may dry up in, at, at you know, these times or, or get more difficult to secure. Yeah. And what is the, the place of uh, design thinking in your innovation process? Yeah, so I think design thinking, you know, it's been talked about a lot. Uh, yeah. Essentially, design thinking is really around putting the user at the heart of what you're doing. And I think most businesses Sorry, now... Design thinking is really what? It's is really, essentially, it's about putting the user and their experience yeah. in the heart of the process and what you're doing. Um, so we've always worked in that way um, because with so much of our work being around um, healthcare and consumer healthcare, uh, it's what the usability of a, 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 for example, if you take a medical device, you legally have to go through formative and summative testing as it's known um, before you can launch a product, essentially to make sure it's safe that this product's not going to kill anybody or harm anybody. So that is a legal requirement of, of launching a, a, a program that you have done usability testing on it, as, as it should be. Um, however, every other product in the world, well, nearly every other product in the world, apart from a few sectors such as healthcare, there is no legal requirement to test a product um, and understand how the user will use this. So um, that's become much, much more central to, to how people work. But we will always test and um, and use those insights from our users to to develop the product and then to test that and then to iterate that to change that or to to build on that and, and then go through that cycle again which is uh, essentially design thinking as, as we now we now use it so that process that has been around for some time is 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 being used across a much broader remit now um, and we we will always try and promote this. There are still some clients that will not and do not engage with their users. And ultimately the products are not as good or not as compelling um, because they will miss insights that are user driven. So in that regard, I think healthcare is, is ahead, of the, ahead of curve. Ahead of what? Ahead of the curve. So oh, okay. it's ahead of, ahead of many other companies. Yeah. That, um, I think you know it's um, it's it's interesting now how many businesses are starting to pay more attention to them. And again, there is there is data around which shows that companies that engage with design thinking processes are more profitable. No, totally. And and a lot of startups have 
have also used this approach because they know they can iterate very fast. They can yeah. test it and 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 do the whole process faster than big companies. So I think yeah. it's a good um, it's a good way to approach a new company is to gather data as quick as you can, develop a product as good as you can, uh, as fast as you can. I mean, and and just test it and re redo it and redo it again and again. Yeah. And and then we get into the territory of MVPs, minimal minimum viable products. So actually, it doesn't have to be, you know, beautifully finished and created for someone to actually understand how they're going to use it, how they're going to interact with it. So again, you know, from a startup perspective, the investment doesn't have to be huge. I think the one thing I would always encourage people to do when they're starting a, a new product is not just speak to their friends and their families about <laughs> their product. Because we have, when we get approached by um, entrepreneurs, we often, they will often come with an idea and they will say, I've spoken to all my friends and family and they think it's brilliant. Yeah. And you can say, well, of course they do because they love you. You're, you know, yeah. your people who will be buying your products do not love you. So, But you know, there is this book, The Mom Test. Have you read this book? No, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. You've heard of it? Yeah, but not read it. It's yeah, it's exactly what you said. Basically, I mean, the the, the title says most of it, and it's um, they even say that when you talk to people, even though they're not your from your family and they're not your friends, don't tell them what it's about because if they know, you know, you have to test them in some clever ways. Otherwise, they would always say, "Oh, that's what you do. Well, then it's great." You know, they were, yeah. <laughs> of course they will say it's great. They don't want to offend you. No, it's totally true. It's totally true. We, we, um, for our company, we. I, I read the mom test, and and he was saying that he lost so much time in in just interviewing people and asking the wrong questions. So I tried yeah. what he said, and I just called parents, and I was super vague. I was just saying, what are the challenges you have in today's education with your kids? I didn't say I had a company. I didn't say I want to. It's just ah, just curious. Just tell me. And so many things came out of this. And then as at the end, I was saying, oh, I have this company and then this idea uh, of, of a company. And then the, the whole thing switched. The, it changed, right? The, the whole, everything they, they were saying. So yeah, sure. Oh, you can do that. Oh, if you do this, yeah, then it's cool. But it had nothing to do with the challenges they were facing. So no, I totally, totally agree. But in, I think also talking about education, there is so much to to teach about creativity and curiosity and how to innovate even in your life just this and all the values you described openness and respect i mean respect has been there was a lot especially also at school and but definitely not about curiosity and creativity i think is a shame i don't know what how what's your experience with that in school and and you're a mom right yeah, yeah, I have yeah. two kids. I have um, a ten-year-old and an eleven-year-old, and um, I think it, it's it. It was something you were saying the other day made me think about it because I think we have we have forgotten how to play, and I think this is something I think that um, is really important when it comes to creativity. I think you know all children have have creativity instilled in them, and at some point that's that's lost, and I think there isn't. There isn't that value associated with creativity in the in the economy in the community, which um, is a real shame. It feels like 
it's a missed it's a missed opportunity because it's so important and that's it doesn't matter what what role you're doing in terms of how you're thinking and how you're problem solving creativity is key and I know this is something that, that you focus on um, and it feels like it feels like it's not it's not or historically hasn't been hasn't been valued we have a lot of organizations and, and we work with some of them around how we can increase um, STEM education um, and you know, around science and technology, which is important as well, and how we can get greater diversity in, in that, because there is an issue at schools around um, you know, girls studying um, STEM subjects. But I think equally, it feels like we need to instill the value of creativity back into our education system. Yeah. Um, and and it's not just you know something that that I think if most parents, um, the majority of parents, if their child came to them and said, "I want to study law at university," they would be quite happy. If they came and said, "I want to study art," maybe some parents would be less happy because they they would not think that it was such a good investment in terms of return on investment, getting your money back. But actually, you know, there's so there's so much value in in how we can do that so I think it's around how we how we recognize that more across society as well yeah and across different topics as well like I, I totally agree with, with what you're saying uh, but also the first thing that came to mind is law versus art and I think creativity sometimes you can be an artist and not be creative and sometimes you can be a lawyer and be super creative in the way you run your business you communicate with people you market yourself and there's, there was the scope is almost as big than when you're an artist. I mean, it depends what kind of artist you are, but that is, uh, that's a whole different subject. I think I've, I've taken enough of your time uh, already and we've covered so many subjects. I'm, I'm super happy that you gave us all those tips for all entrepreneurs out there and people who wants to uh, climb the ladder like you did. So um, uh, yeah, no, that's great. I'm, I'm super happy. Well, thank you so much. Um, if there are comments in this video, you can leave a comment just uh, below and we will answer it. And I will ask Merle, hey, look, there is this comment. Can you please answer it? Um, in any case, thank you so much, Merle. And thank you. I see you soon, maybe, on another Definitely. event. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.